Look, good afternoon and welcome. We are going to go ahead and get started if we could. Uh, thank you for being here, one and all. My name is Dean Reuter, and I'm the director of the Federalist Society's practice groups, and I'm very happy to welcome you here today to our discussion on corporate social responsibility or UN corporate governance. I have pretty strong opinions on the matter, but I'll let the two gentlemen, uh, our speakers, uh, uh, really get into the substance. They're each going to speak for about 20 minutes, uh, and then they'll take questions and we can have discussion among the group here. Um, we're going to hear first from John Gardner. Uh, John is currently a senior director of the White House Writers Group in Washington, D.C., uh, he served as Deputy Assistant to President George W. Bush and Deputy Staff Secretary and as a Special Assistant to President George Bush from 1989 to 1992. Uh, perhaps even more importantly for our purposes today, from 2001 to 2005, John served as General Counsel to USAID, which I think is pretty much immersed, uh, immersed in these issues. Uh, he's also served uh, as the Uni United States Representative to the Governance Committee of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. We were talking about this at our lunch table. Um, and he's a founding member of its Ethics Committee. He's also been in private practice uh, in New York, the law firm of Davis Polk and Wardwell. So he has an extensive background. Uh, you must be uh, older than you look. So. <coughs> uh, then we're going to hear from Jim Kelly. Uh, Jim uh, serves as the Federalist Society's Director of International Affairs. In that capacity, uh, he serves as the Federalist Society's representative on the U.S. National Commission for United Nations educational, scientific, and cultural organizations, uh, better known as UNESCO. Uh, in 2005, Jim was appointed as the chairman of the U.S. National Commission's Social and Human Sciences Committee. He served on the U.S. delegation to the last two UNESCO general conferences. Uh, Jim, of course, has a lot to say on this issue as well. So without further, uh, please welcome John Gardner. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for uh, coming here today. Um, uh, greetings to all of you, not only here, but those who are going to be watching on, on video. Let me just start by saying, especially for those who are watching on, on video, today is December 11th in Washington, uh, which I say only because yesterday was Human Rights Day. And it's a day to remember people like uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the leader of the Burmese opposition, the Dalai Lama, the, the Christians who've been martyred in uh, places like Eritrea and elsewhere, and, and all those who were denied basic human rights, in particular by the actions of oppressive governments. That's the very reason that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted. So I hope that as we have this discussion, it will be a civil discussion, and that all can agree that all parties to this discussion are concerned about promoting basic human rights, including the right to health, which is sadly not enjoyed by so many people around the world today. So there is gre agreement on the goal, better access to physical and mental health, but sharp divergence in terms of the best strategy as to how to get there. I approach this from the perspective that in international law, the right to health is a fundamental responsibility of states, not of private actors, and that systems that use market-based incentives and reward innovation will achieve greater access to medicines faster and more securely than systems which are based on excessive regulation, economic redistribution, and takings of property, including intellectual property. Let's start by looking at international law. In the classic conception of international law, the subject concerns the rights and obligations of sovereigns, 
rather than private actors. As Hans Kelsen wrote, international law is regarded as a set of objectively valid norms that regulate the mutual behavior of states. The crucial idea here is the acceptance by states of international law and of norms of international law by which they freely consent to be governed. That's the classic conception. More modern conceptions of international law challenge this assumption, particularly in the area of human rights law. Some scholars, international officials, and activists read these treaties broadly and push hard in the direction of seeking to make the ideals contained in the treaties into binding law. As Louise Arbour wrote in one of the most expansive statements of this view, socioeconomic rights have the status of binding law, bringing them from the realm of charity to the realm of justice and developing a body of ever-growing jurisprudence by which we can be guided into bringing these vital rights into the reality of people's lives. While I think most people would agree that that's a very expansive statement of the reach of contemporary international law, uh, I think we can accept from the treaties that there is something of a right to health in international law, even if there is disagreement over the contours of that right. We find the right to health in the preamble of the WHO Constitution and, for those states that have ratified it, Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Which brings us more closely to today's topic. Professor Paul Hunt of the University of Essex in England is what is known in the UN system as a special rapporteur. As the UN describes the office, quote, a special rapporteur is an independent expert appointed to monitor, examine, and report on either a particular human rights issue or the human rights situation in a particular country or territory. The concept goes back to the 1980s, and there are now a total of 36 such offices, both regional and thematic. Professor Hunt is the special rapporteur, quote, on the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, unquote, his formal title. He's a professor at the Department of Law and the Human Rights Center at the University of Essex in the UK and also at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. He was appointed in 2002 by the UN Commission on Human Rights. Uh, his mandate was renewed for three years in 2005 and then extended in 2006 by the new UN Human Rights Council, as were the mandate of all the other special rapporteurs. Uh, I, by my calculations, therefore, his mandate will expire in 2009. He recently issued uh, the document that you have in front of you, which is his draft pharmaceutical guidelines, human rights guidelines for pharmaceutical companies in relation to access to medicines. These were issued on September 19th, and they're open for comment until December 31st, at which time he uh, has said that he will look at the comments and then try to finalize these guidelines in 2008. In the short time we have available, I can only walk through and touch on some major issues in, with the guidelines, sort of basic issue spotting for those of you who went to law school and are doubtless now reliving many, many happy memories of the December exam season. Let's begin with an acknowledgement. 
The guidelines do say in the introductory note that, quote, states have primary responsibility for enhancing access to medicines, unquote, which is the classic statement of, of the law. And in fairness, Hunt does state his, quote, recognition that the right to health is subject to resource constraints and progressive realization, requiring the, identi the identification of indicators and benchmarks to measure progress or the lack of it over time, end quote. But that is only one part. The guidelines say very little about the responsibility of states thereafter. The introductory note also states that in 2000, the, U the UN Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights confirmed that the private business sector has responsibilities regarding the realization of the right to the highest attainable standard of health. But the footnote to this statement shows that it comes from a general comment. Here, general comment number 14, paragraph 42 from uh, that year 2000. This view, therefore, in my view, confuses general comments with binding statements of international law, such as those in the treaties themselves. This argument effectively elevates committees of the UN to the status of states with the power to issue binding interpretation of treaties. Not all actors in the system have accepted the idea that general comments are binding, least of all on states themselves. Next, the introduction continues to declare that the guidelines will assist those who wish to monitor the human rights performance of the pharmaceutical sector in relation to access to medicines. I'll have more to say on this later. The guidelines begin with several general statements. Uh, and I'll, as I go through this, especially for those of you on video, I'll read uh, the relevant portion of the guideline and then try to offer a little bit of, little bit of commentary. I apologize for having to work this way, but it's probably the, probably the easiest way to cover as many of the guidelines as I can. Uh, the first guideline states that the company's corporate mission statement should expressly recognize the importance of human rights generally and the right to the highest attainable standard of health in particular in relation to the strategies, policies, programs, projects, and activities of the company. In essence, Hunt asks companies to explicitly acknowledge his and the UN's right to be placed within the company's mission. Further, in the next paragraph, Companies are asked to integrate these human rights into all aspects of the company's activities. Next, in Guideline 3, the company is asked to join the UN Global Compact. But why is this? No provision is made in the guidelines for other types of CSR organizations or other types of private activities that the company may and probably already has uh, done on its own initiative. Instead, the company is being pushed into a UN structure, even though the UN Global Compact is described as a purely voluntary initiative by its very nature. To my understanding, Hunt's guidelines represent the first time in the international system that joining the compact is being made mandatory, or strongly suggested, if you will, rather than voluntary. Once it becomes mandatory, I think it's then legitimate to ask what the next step will be. Conditions on financing? Something else? No one knows. Guideline 4 states in part that the company should always comply with the national law of the state where it operates, which sounds reasonable and generally is, but which also gets us right into the middle of the concerns or some of the concerns with the guidelines. What if, for instance, the host country enacts a law requiring confiscation of intellectual property or mandatory licensing without full compensation? In the world of the guidelines, the duty of the company would then be simply to comply to its, to its severe financial detriment. 
The next five guidelines on management form an aggressive strategy on access to medicines policy, including, quote, direct board-level responsibility and accountability for its access to medicine strategy in Guideline 7, and, quote, specific objectives and time frames, end quote, in Guideline 8. I defer to corporate lawyers for an, an analysis of the degree to which this board involvement may conflict with other clear duties of the board, such as maximizing value to shareholders. Further, Guideline 10 once again opens the door for the involvement of those outside the company by requiring mechanisms that encourage and facilitate stakeholder, no, not shareholder, stakeholder engagement and participation in the formulation, implementation, and management of its medicine strategy. At this point, company management is no longer solely responsible for the management of the company itself. Instead, it is invited to abdicate certain of its responsibilities to outside stakeholders. Next, the guidelines continue to address public policy, influence, advocacy, and lobbying. Guideline 12 proposes to require disclosure of, quote, all current advocacy and lobbying positions and related activities that impact or may impact on access to medicines, end quote. This extraordinarily broad standard would go far beyond any duties both under U.S. law and under the regulations governing U.N. bodies themselves, at least the U.N. bodies with which I'm most familiar. Needless to say, no comparable duty or disclosure requirement is proposed for those who would monitor pharmaceutical companies. This continues in Guideline 13 to require disclosure of all, quote, financial and other support, not merely to political leaders, but to academic institutions, patient groups, and others. One wonders how many universities have already adopted policies along this, along this line for their own researchers as they try themselves to become more active in, in pharmaceutical research, not just here, but, but increasingly in the developing world. And in areas where there is likely to be, quote, a significant impact, end quote, on access to medicines, approval by the board of these influence or lobbying or advocacy activities is required. And one is left to imagine why. For instance, for U.S. companies, could this simply open the door to a number of new types of lawsuits? Next, the guidelines discuss research and development for neglected disease in, in the next four guidelines. They call on companies to support this research either in-house or for companies that are not focused on these particular diseases through external support. They do not, however, define neglected diseases, leading to the fear that they could be defined by outside advocates at least very broadly to include HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria, and possibly even as broadly as the so-called WHO type 1 diseases, which are diseases that affect both the developing and the developed world, as we have seen in the uh, current work of the Intergovernmental Working Group following the Commission on Intellectual Property and Public Health, which is going on right now uh, through the World Health Organization in Geneva. This fear of a broad mandate and broad definition of neglected diseases is further reinforced by Guideline 18 referring to middle-income countries as well as low-income countries. This leads quite naturally into the next section, which discusses patents and licensing. And in many ways, this is the key to the entire document. In effect, the guidelines are designed to work together with the Intergovernmental Working Group, the Commission on Intellectual Property and Public Health, or SIPICH, processes, and other efforts to dramatically weaken intellectual property protections. 
For instance, Guideline 19 states that the company should respect the right of countries to use to the full the provisions in the TRIPS agreement, including with respect to compulsory licensing and parallel imports, which is a, is a major shift uh, for those of you who have not followed the trade law uh, developments in this area towards greater rights for developing countries uh, and uh, to have uh, transactions that are on non-commercial terms. Also, the company should make a public commitment not to lobby for more demanding protection of intellectual property interests than is required by TRIPS, such as additional limitations on compulsory licensing. And I think this should be read for what it is. It's nothing more than a slap by Professor Hunt at the United States for seeking high standards for intellectual property protection in the free trade agreements that it is negotiating around the world, including with some developing countries. In the absence of a global Doha round, these FTAs provide some of the best opportunities for developing countries to achieve rapid economic growth. Yet here, companies are not allowed to point this out or support efforts to achieve FTAs. A company that lobbied, for instance, for the recent CAFTA-DR agreement in the United States would thus be somehow in violation of the guidelines. Similarly, Guideline 21 states that companies should support states and issue compulsory licenses for exports to developing countries without manufacturing capacity. At this point, the company would simply be manufacturing drugs without any link to its true research and development costs to say nothing of achieving a return on investment. Guideline 22 calls on the company not to lobby for developing countries that have until 2016 to grant or enforce patents to do so, in other words, to grant these patents before that time. And this is truly radical. The suggestion that a company cannot encourage countries to understand how the adoption of a strong intellectual property rights or IPR regime is in their own interest, as, for instance, to assist in the development of that very same domestic manufacturing capacity which the guidelines seek to promote. Guideline 26 states that the company should not extend patent duration or file patents for new indication for existing medicines in low-income and middle-income countries. Essentially, this asks the company to give up all its rights granted under international law to seek patent protection in fully 159 of the world's countries using the World Bank definitions. For clarity, this list, and because the guidelines do not define it further, I think we have to take the broadest measure possible, includes Argentina, Brazil, seven countries in the European Union, South Africa, which has a thriving pharmaceutical industry, India, China, and Mexico. Thus, under the guidelines, an American pharmaceutical company should not file a patent in Mexico, a country with which the United States has a free trade agreement and is seeking closer economic integration, which seems an absurd result. Similarly, a French, German, or UK company should not seek patent protection even in other member states of the European Union, a result that to me at least seems contrary to European law. Other guidelines concern pricing, discounting, and donations, which I'm unfortunately going to have to skip for reasons of time. Uh, the two guidelines on ethical promotion and marketing seem unobjectionable, but of course companies in the industrial world are already governed in this regard by national law. Three additional guidelines concern clinical trials. Again, surely companies have an interest for both moral and business reasons to 
ensure that clinical trials should observe the highest ethical and human rights standards. But this matter, I think, should essentially be regulated at national, not international level. The guidelines also address associations of pharmaceutical companies, bodies such as Pharma in the U.S. or IFPMA internationally. The guidelines, including their provisions on lobbying and financial support, are supposed to apply to these associations as well. And they seek to impose a due diligence duty on companies to ensure that the associations themselves comply, otherwise the company should withdraw from that association. Finally, the guidelines propose a fully independent monitoring and accountability function. Again, this is a radical step. The idea is not, as for instance in the case of the Sarbanes-Oxley law, to protect shareholders, but rather to have an independent monitoring function on behalf of outside parties. One could understand and endorse such a mechanism if a particular company had problems with safety or marketing practices. This, this happens routinely. But the guidelines propose this as a requirement for all companies, presupposing without warrant that all companies somehow need this. At this point, it is not too much to say that the company no longer has control of its own affairs and has passed from private or public ownership into some form, at least, of partly social ownership. It is meant to involve outside stakeholders in the implementation and management of these various plans. Guideline 47 proposes, quote, an effective, transparent, accessible, an independent monitoring and accountability mechanism that, one, assesses the impact of the company's strategies, policies, programs, projects, and activities on access to medicines, especially for disadvantaged individuals and communities, and two, monitors and holds the company to account in relation to the guidelines. How this would be done is not clear, but companies would be under tremendous continuing outside pressure. For some, any efforts a company makes might never be enough. The guidelines, as I hope is by now clear, are nothing if, comp if, if not comprehensive. They represent an extraordinarily ambitious and expansive program. Fully implemented, they would represent nothing less than a massive transfer of wealth from shareholders of industrial nations, pharmaceutical companies, to developing countries with no direct international warrant except Hunt's, Hunt's slim mandate of soft law. If the guidelines were then ever turned into a general comment on the covenant, that would be an even further step towards internationalization of socioeconomic rights. As I hope you've seen also, the guidelines raise a number of questions for consideration. As this is a Federalist gathering, I'll try to keep the focus on some of the legal questions, but uh, I'm sure my remarks will veer into development policy as well. First. Nowhere in the guidelines does the principle appear that a company is expected to make some return on its investment. As former Prime Minister Tony Blair of the UK told the Davos gathering a few years ago, the first social responsibility of business is to make a profit. That concept is absent here. Of course, not every drug will work, many will fail in clinical trials, and the costs of drug development continue to rise. But surely, a private enterprise is entitled to take these into consideration, these costs into consideration, and to make a return on its investment. That is the fundamental principle of capitalism. And all this is coming at a time when, as a very recent Wall Street Journal article reported, the U.S. pharmaceutical industry in particular is facing renewed pressures as many blockbuster drugs continue to come off patent, with a particular bulge in that area starting in 2010. This has two effects. 
First, drugs that go off patent will become cheaper and more accessible, including in the developing world. And second, as revenues decline, there are fewer resources available for R&D, which can become a vicious cycle, and one which will itself impact access to medicines. So, from one perspective, this proposed form of soft regulation, if you will, is in fact harsher than the traditional model of regulation that has been used for either monopolies or for utilities. The old pre-breakup AT&T, or the current power company in many states, is regulated strictly, but on the basis of its costs and a reasonable rate of return, unlike the approach given here. If the critics respond that this approach is assumed, I think we must in turn respond that if so, it should be stated clearly and directly. I'm also concerned about the potential for soft law to replace hard law. There has been some discussion in various fora in recent years about starting negotiations for an international treaty on pharmaceutical research and development. I would oppose such a treaty if it weakened intellectual property rights, but at least it would be a treaty agreed by states rather than simply an informal document. At the same time as all this is happening, of course, regulators and payers in the U.S. are now looking increasingly to control costs. The growth in sales of all types of drugs is slated to grow next year at its slowest rate in decades, according to the IMS healthcare consulting firm. Access to medicines is but one part, therefore, of a larger picture. In the context of the right to health, one must look at all factors that affect health, sanitation, pollution, health systems infrastructure, so many others. The guidelines do reference counterfeiting, but in 2006, the WHO reported that counterfeiting of drugs is a $40 billion industry, one that cruelly steals lives, especially from the poor. And while, again, the guidelines do reference the need for the highest clinical standards appropriately, there should also be a greater focus on stringent regulation of manufacture particularly in some countries in the developing world, to assure bioequivalence, safety, and the efficacy of drugs. I think part of the solution is for the stringent regulatory authorities in the developed world to redouble their efforts in this area to help their developing world counterparts. And similarly, while there's nothing in the guidelines that limit their applications on, on, on the face to companies in the developed world, I fear the practical impact would be to do just that. And what would be the impact on state-owned pharmaceutical companies? Would governments in those countries really consent to the kind of independent monitoring that the guidelines propose? Next, what about companies focusing on production of generics rather than originator drugs? Would they have the same duties? No one knows. A company that endorses the guidelines, therefore, without a further explanation of their meaning and their interpretation and their status as law or voluntary regulation or some other type of hybrid, therefore, has to seriously consider whether it would de facto place itself in a position where it and its boards is no longer truly in control of its own affairs, all because the company chose to research, develop, and manufacture pharmaceuticals. More specifically, the guidelines and similar projects have the real potential to hurt innovation in scientific research. They lower the incentives for companies to participate in R&D. In this case, who will then will address the challenges of tomorrow, whether diseases like cancer or Alzheimer's, or even diseases such as Leishmaniasis or Chagas disease that disproportionately affect the developing world? 
Because the guidelines themselves focus so heavily on IP, I have to read them in conjunction with what is happening at the World Health Organization, the World Intellectual Property Organization, and other attempts to weaken intellectual property protection throughout the international system. Several questions in conclusion. First, which industry is next? Does anyone really believe that the pharmaceutical industry is so unique that this experience would not be repeated? For those of you who doubt me, I would encourage you to read the recommendations on the World Intellectual Property Organization Development Agenda recently agreed at the Assemblies of Member States, especially Regulation 38, which is basically a mandate to take the Commission on Intellectual Health and I'm sorry, in Intellectual Property and Public Health process and apply it to other industries in which there is significant patent protection. And two final comments. First, comments are open on the guidelines until December 31. I would strongly encourage anyone interested in them, from whatever perspective, to get their comments in. Sometimes people have an understandable fear of raising their heads above the parapet. But from the perspective of those who want to preserve a high level of protection for intellectual property rights, I have to tell you, this, along with the sippage process, could be a game-changing event. If you do not act now, the parapet from which you will then fight could be considerably lower and your position less secure. And my final question is this. Why have we heard so little about this until today? Thank you for your attention. Thank you, John. Appreciate those insights about the special rapporteur on the right to the highest attainable standard of health. And what I'm going to be doing is looking at the issue of human rights governance from a broader perspective uh, at the UN and UNESCO level. And uh, in your chairs, uh, you will have found a binder. That's the, uh, my remarks are behind tab one, and you can follow along if you'd like. And then I'll be referring to additional documents in the uh, following tabs. Is the work of the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health an isolated event, or is it a precursor to a whole agenda of UN global human rights governance uh, that uh, is here and present and very active? Uh, I think that is the case. I'm going to briefly examine the human security origins of the UN global governance agenda. I'm going to look at the role and the methods of UNESCO in pursuing this agenda. And then I'm going to look at the outcomes of UN global governance efforts. The UN global governance agenda is a product of the UN's human security program. And in tab two, you'll see an article that I wrote for our engaged law journal at the Federal Society in the name of human security, UNESCO, and the pursuit of global governance. Human security is a term I think you're going to be hearing a lot more of uh, in the years to come. Uh, in 2003, there was an independent commission on human security and they delivered their report to UN, then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. Human security now, protecting and empowering people. The human security report explained that human security encompasses all human rights, civil and political rights, which protect people, and economic, social, and cultural rights, which empower people. The key economic and social rights that comprise the human security agenda are contained in the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. To name a few, we've talked about the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, the right to the enjoyment of just and favorable conditions of work, the right to an adequate standard of living, including adequate food, clothing, and housing, and to the conditions 
and to the continuous improvement of living conditions. There's also the right to education and the right to enjoy the benefits of scientific progress and its applications. I think that uh, just the, you know, the, the basic nature of these rights uh, without any further clarification of their extent is, is uh, you know, cause for great concern. And, and these are the rights that are at the heart of the UN Human Rights Global Governance Agenda. But can the UN actually globally govern economic and social rights? Twenty years ago, I don't think that was the case. I'm going to you know, present the case today that they are doing it, uh, that they have been very uh, uh, deliberate about doing it, if not very transparent in doing that. Uh, but they had two problems that they had to face. Uh, one was a participatory gap. When you start talking about the UN globally governing economic social rights, you say, well, who, who, who would govern that? The member states, uh, that's not democracy. How, you know, how are you going to bring in the other, quote, stakeholders, the other partners? And I'm going to explore a little bit about how you know, to do that, to close that participatory gap. You're going to have to transform the UN and its agencies from intergovernmental organizations to a tripartite arrangement between civil society, business, and the UN member states. The second problem that they have in terms of globally governing human rights is the operational gap. How do you govern? Uh, so you've got who do you govern and how do you govern? And, and the how do you govern has been compensated for by uh, a, a matrix of human rights global governance networks that I'll explain further in my talk. But when we talk about, first of all, closing the participatory gap, who will govern? And UNESCO uh, has uh, addressed this issue most recently uh, in in a civil society forum that took place in Paris at the General Conference, but they did so because in 2004, the United Nations published a report, We the People, Civil Society, the United Nations, and Global Governance. It was the report of a panel of eminent persons on United Nations civil society relations. The report proposed that the UN do the following, quote, empower a range of global policy networks, engage other actors in deliberative processes, convene global conferences to define norms and targets, form multi-stakeholder partnerships to put the norms and targets into practice, hold multi-stakeholder hearings to monitor compliance, review experience, and revise strategies, and innovate with networked governance to identify possible policy breakthroughs on emerging global priorities. That was at the UN level in 2004. In 2007, uh, UNESCO picked up this ball to continue the effort for creating new forms of governance at the level of the UN. Uh, during their general conference, which is held every two years, it's the equivalent of the UN General Assembly, uh, UNESCO member states come together to consider and adopt resolutions and programs of actions for the next two years. This year, for the first time ever, uh, on, on one of the Wednesday sessions, they had an international form of civil society, UNESCO Partners. And what they did was uh, they devoted a whole day to, to bringing together the, you know, the heads of transnational business organizations, civil society, non-governmental organizations, and then some representatives from member states. Alex Zemek, my friend from the U.S. National Commission for UNESCO, was there, as, as I was, and also Susanna Connaughton, who's the director uh, of uh, the U.S. National Commission. And all day long, people got up and spoke about the need for UNESCO to move more towards this 
shared partnership arrangement. Uh, and then uh, the session was due to close at 5 o'clock. I'm sorry, at 6 o'clock. And at 5 o'clock, the, the person running the meeting said, well, you know, we've had such a demand today from participants to memorialize our work here today. We're going to share with you an outcome document that will, uh, you know, acknowledge that we need to move more in this direction. And, and the three of us went into panic mode and, we, you know, we started calling in lawyers and draft. And basically they... they ramrodded uh, a document uh, to the participants, and, and you'll see that that outcome document of the Civil Society UNESCO Forum calls for UNESCO to continue to act as an interface between the various spheres of civil society and to create necessary forums for dialogue with a view to promoting multi-stakeholder partnerships at the international, national, and regional levels through its field offices and in liaison with the National Commissions for UNESCO. So uh, that document was, quote-unquote, adopted by uh, civil society and, and transnational businesses and some member states that happened to be in the room, but it really wasn't an official UNESCO document. But this is sort of the way the agency is working these days in, in that you have member states meeting every two years to adopt resolutions, and then UNESCO goes away and holds these multi-stakeholder partnership fora in parts around the world to discuss different human rights and, and the aspects of how to implement their human rights agenda. So that moves us to the operational gap. How is UNESCO uh, implementing a UN matrix of human rights global governance networks? There is a division within UNESCO, a sector called the social and human sciences. And that's the, the sector with which I've been concerned and our commission has been concerned through its committee in that area. And that group there, the social and human science sector, is responsible for the creation of human rights global governance networks and again I, I was talking with John Fonte earlier this is you know 20 years ago it might have been black helicopters you know pie in the sky but now this has actually happened and I've because been able to uh, participate in some of these UNESCO uh, forums on, on human rights I've been able to watch this unfold over the past three years and have put together what I see is 10 networks that exist for the uh, further uh, explanation implementation and enforcement of a human rights agenda at the UN level First are the advocacy networks. These consist of national, regional, and international non-governmental organizations and civil society organizations. For example, Amnesty International has formal consultative relations with UNESCO that are, quote, aimed at sustained cooperation with UNESCO in its fields of competence, both upstream and downstream from the organization's programming and priorities. Pierre Sané, who's the Assistant Director General of the Social and Human Sciences sector, is the former Secretary General of Amnesty International. The second type of human rights global governance networks are research networks. So once the advocates have said, we want uh, you know, a, a right to health in relation to access to medicines, they go to the research networks. This consists of regional social science and policy think tanks. And uh, an example of, of this is UNESCO has a program called the Management of Social Transformations Program. And they, their goal is to build a, a database, a knowledge database of, of, of social science research that will support the human rights policies that they want to see implemented around the world. Uh, they held in 2006 an international forum on the social science policy nexus. Uh, they were in Buenos Aires and brought together social science and academics uh, together with policymakers and lawmakers and said, wouldn't it be great if we all cooperated in terms of research on human rights and translated them into policies that can then be implemented at the national level? Uh, you'll see that they adopted a, a tab four, uh, what's known as the Buenos Aires Declaration, calling for a new approach to the social science policy nexus. 
after research networks, uh, you have policy networks where you actually take the research and develop policies with the influential lawmakers from, from different nations and different regions. And UNESCO, again, has a formal program uh, called UNESCO Forums of Ministers for Social Development. And they meet with the social development heads of countries from around the world on a regional level, and they talk about uh, you know evolving human rights policies, uh, and then they encourage the social ministers to think about these and, and, and to you know express their delight over them or, or to tweak whatever social science research and policies have been developed. Uh, and then with that information and that buy-in from ministers for social development, uh, UNESCO then holds its uh, standard setting. And the standard setting networks consist of intergovernmental international organizations. So, you know, you've gone through the research stage. You've gone through uh, policy development. Now you're ready to articulate the standards. So what happened was in 2005, UNESCO adopted the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights. And you'd think this would be a bioethics document, but really it's more of a social responsibility sharing of benefits document. Article 14 declares that progress in science and technology should advance access to quality health care and essential medicines. If, ta if you turn to tab five, you'll see uh, the actual uh, universal declaration. Uh, and then there's also, in addition to Article 14 on social responsibility, there's an Article 15 on the sharing of benefits. Uh, you know, just talking about benefits from scientific research should be shared with society as a whole, and it gets into uh, you know, the discussions that we're having today over Paul Hunt's guidelines regarding access to uh, medicines and the obligations of pharmaceutical companies in that regard. So once the norms have been adopted by the adoption of a, what they insist is a non-binding declaration, and that's the big, you know, they, they, they insist when they're debating this, this is non-binding, there's no need for concern. Uh, you know, the United States spent most of its time at this negotiation at which I was present getting shall removed from this declaration. You know, they, they had it, it was a non-binding document, and every sentence began, you shall do this, you shall do that. And, you know, we were just happy coming out of the room with getting a bunch of shoulds. But the, the heart of the document is that it was trying to set up norms. So what happens is, after this, uh, they engage their interpretive networks. That's where you have a treaty monitoring body, special rapporteurs, and international organization working groups. They then put flesh on the bones of what it means to be socially responsible under this particular declaration, or what does it mean to share benefits, or what does it mean to provide uh, better access to medicines. Uh, for example, and John, you referred to this in 2000, the UN Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights produced their general comment on the right to the highest attainable standard of health. That's sort of the, the benchmark. And, and in 2007, the uh, UNESCO, after the declaration had been adopted, came back and uh, they appointed an International Bioethics Committee Working Group on Social Responsibility and Health. They produced a preliminary draft report which states, quote, the industrial and commercial rationale of the pharmaceutical industry no doubt conflicts with the terms of the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights, since the excessively high price of medicines put them virtually beyond the reach of the world's poorest communities. So now they've taken the non-binding declaration. They've you know, produced a working group that then produces a report that says pharmaceutical companies are now in conflict with this non-binding declaration that we've uh, promulgated. Uh, so it's uh, on it goes. And then in 2007, again, through these interpretive networks, how are they interpreting what they've just passed as standards or norms? Paul Hunt published his draft human rights guidelines for pharmaceutical companies in relation to access to medicines. Moving on to the process to the sixth, the explanatory networks. This is consisting of international, organizational, regional office field staff. So the interpretive network 
they get together and say, okay, here's what this human right means. Now let's take it and explain it around the world to people so that we have broad-based support for it and we can take some action. Uh, UNESCO has the UNESCO ABC project, assisting bioethics committees. That supports the establishment and operations of bioethics committees in member states. So basically, uh, they take the, the news of the declaration, they take the working committee's draft on what uh, uh, social responsibility or the sharing of benefits means, and they, through their field offices, go to uh, help people establish in their, their nations bioethics committees, not to do bioethics per se, but to pursue this social responsibility and sharing of benefits agenda. After uh, they explain it in, in these countries and these bioethic committees are created, they then get on to implementation networks, which consists of the national legislatures. So what you have is UNESCO creating a global ethics observatory, and it establishes a collection of legislative activities, such as laws, regulations, and guidelines that are implementing the Universal Declaration on Human Rights in order to provide examples to member states. So UNESCO, through its field offices, after setting up national bioethics committees, then says, okay, now we've got the model laws relating to social responsibility and the sharing benefits that we'd like for you to enact in your you know, nation. Uh, and one of our field uh, uh, staff will be there to uh, lobby, basically, uh, your uh, national legislature on how to pass laws uh, in, in these different human rights areas. So after uh, the national government or, or whatever body passes a, a law governing social responsibility or, or uh, in this case, access to medicines, how do you enforce those laws? Well, UNESCO is uh, able to rely on enforcement networks consisting of national and regional courts. European Court of Human Rights obviously is dedicated to the issue of human rights. The United States Supreme Court, I think this you know, goes to the danger uh, that John warned us about, uh, the soft norms being uh, used uh, in, a, in a judicial process to, to enforce rights that aren't clearly uh, binding on uh, member states or nations on, in an international law. Uh, I refer to Justice Kennedy's uh, quote from Simmons v. Roper in 2005 where uh, the, our U.S. Supreme Court held it's unconstitutional to impose capital punishment for crimes committed while under the age of 18. Quote, the opinion of the world community, while not controlling our outcome, does provide respected and significant confirmation for our own conclusions. Uh, that uh, shows you, I guess, the extent to which soft norms can be relied upon to get the result that the court might want to in terms of uh, the human rights agenda. Finally, you have funding networks, and this consists of transnational corporations, private foundations, and governments. John referred to the United Nations Global Compact. It asks its corporate members to embrace these uh, at tab six. There's ten principles. They ask their members to embrace, support, and enact with, within their sphere of influence a set of core values in the area of human rights, labor standards, the environment, and anti-corruption. Another example of the funding networks is the United States government, which pays 22% of UNESCO's annual assessed budget. It's important to note that Really, uh, in the three or four years since we've gotten back into UNESCO, uh, the social and human sciences sector has been most aggressive in pursuing its human rights global governance uh, uh, network system, as, as I've described it here today. So in conclusion, what, is, you know, what are the goals of the UN human rights global governance efforts? First, they want to transform the UN and UNESCO into, uh, from intergovernmental organizations controlled by member states into multi-stakeholder partnership organizations in which member states civil society, and transnational businesses share power under the management of UN and UNESCO officials. 
Second, they do want to create, uh, continue to create and manage a system of human rights global governance networks to promote and protect existing and emerging human rights. Thirdly, they want to create a human rights catechism through the adoption of normative human rights instruments in the areas of economic and social affairs. You'll see an article at tab 7 that I wrote, Democratic Evolution and the Church of the United Nations. And then finally, they wish to enhance the justiciability of human rights, the ability to bring legal, legal challenges uh, against nations, against companies uh, for human rights value, uh, violations by creating these soft norms contained in non-binding declarations, treaty body uh, general comments, and UN special rapporteur guidelines like Professor Hunt's guidelines that we've been discussing today. Now, uh, we will be happy. Thank you for your time and thank you for your attendance. We'd also be happy to take, of course, any questions that you have of John or of me. Or I, I know so many of us are involved in this issue of uh, the UN global governance. If, if any of you uh, wish to just raise things not directly posed to us, but for our own edification, we'd appreciate that. Does this work? Um, Jim, before we begin, did you want to make any other comments on my paper and... Uh I have I have no I okay. have no right. uh, <laughs> I, I love your paper. Well, thank you. <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, let me just let me just make two comments. Um, sort of is a supplement to to one is a supplement to what Jim said and one is a supplement to what I said. Should I get up for the video, or can I? Okay, I can stay here. Okay. Um, the first is about civil society. Let, let me be very very clear about this. International development will not take place without the active. And, and strong involvement of civil society. This is not beat up on Civil Society Day. It, it, the, the, the question here, and in fact, when I was at USAID, as the, they said in the introduction, I was very involved in the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria. And we worked very closely with civil society. And in fact, that organization was designed to raise the profile of civil society in part because they felt that working with patient groups and with other kinds of, you know, other kinds of groups in civil society was an effective way to try to take some of the, some of the impetus solely from being on governments in terms of how money was spent. That sometimes you know, countries had not developed a national aid strategy or, or were misusing the money or there were problems with corruption and things like that. So building these country coordination mechanisms with civil society was, was one way that, that a lot of people felt, and I absolutely strongly agreed with this, to try to ensure that money would be well spent and that international development would take place in the most rapid uh, by the most rapid means possible, and that and that the money that so many donors were giving would be used to greatest effect to help the largest number of people. So civil society, qua civil society, is not the issue. What I was trying to talk about, and I hope this came out, is that it's when one is is that it's when one moves to the question of adopting binding norms in international law, that the classic conception is that the position of states and to a lesser degree of international organizations has to be preserved. To me, the problems come not when civil society is involved in development. I mean, frankly, I mean, they should be. I mean, and, and I would take a very broad definition of civil society here. Uh, everything from business to NGOs to groups like the Federal Society to academics, all sorts of, all sorts of types of actors. The problem comes not when they're involved in development. The problem comes when there is some sort of mechanism giving privileged positions to certain non-state actors that then can be used as leverage against other non-state actors, and in particular, 
the particular danger against state, certain states that may not have accepted what could be considered a norm of international law. That has the potential to throw some very serious challenges towards the international system. So I, I hope that that clarifies things a little bit in terms of the place of civil society, at least in, in, as to how I look at it, both from an international law perspective and, frankly, from a development perspective. Second, um, Jim's comment in detail about the Global Compact reminded me of something that I probably should have elucidated in, in my remarks. Um, principle 7 of the Global Compact is about the environment and states businesses should support a precautionary approach to environmental challenges. Um, you know, that language is written very broadly. I would hope that um, an American company could, that wanted to sign the Global Compact could simply say, well, this, we, we plan, we, we try to, to have a strategy about minimization of pollution or other types of environmental responsibility. And that's one definition. I think that there could be another and slightly more dangerous definition, which is if the word precautionary were, attempt, were an attempt to substitute the principle in European law of the so-called precautionary principle uh, as opposed to other, er, other types of systems such as the U.S. environmental law, which have a very different approach to uh, to environmental protection. So I think that that is one thing that if the second definition in particular is what's meant here would give great pause to an American company involved in certain manufacturing activities uh, before deciding to sign the uh, global compact. Uh, thanks for your time. Sorry, mm -hmm. going. Any questions at this stage? If you would please... John Fonte, Hudson Institute. Just on civil society, let me ask you a very broad philosophical question. Is there such a thing as global civil society or is civil society connected to a particular uh, nation state, national civil society? You mentioned the federal society. Well, that would be a private association within a nation state. Um, but we know uh, the UN has talked about global civil society. In this case, actors in global civil society could impact nation states in which they are not, of course, members. So if you could go into that a little bit. Thank you. Well, again, I mean, with the, with the provision that I said that, there, that the distinction here is about the development of binding norms of international law, and I don't know if Jim's going to agree with this, but I'm perfectly comfortable saying that there's such a thing as global civil society. Again, I, I think in the human rights example, I mean, Jim mentioned amnesty, uh, whether they should have a privileged position with UNESCO is one question. Uh, whether they should have a right to put pressure on the government of Myanmar or uh, some other countries in the world is, is something very different. Uh, I, th I think that there are obviously a number of organizations that have set themselves up as international federations that in that capacity do have, if you will, the character of a global civil society. I'd be I'd be a little, I, I would be reluctant to go beyond that in terms, of, in terms of a definition because I think of some of the dangers that I think your question is getting at in terms of, well, all right, why should certain groups have more privileged positions than others? And second, uh, what does it mean to say that, that something is global versus something is, is national? 
I mean, they're in the legal field, obviously, there is an international bar association. Uh, there are international federations of lawyers and doctors and pharmaceutical companies and anything else one wishes. And, and for them to have a, a role in, in at least monitoring what's happening at the international level, I think is perfectly legitimate. The question is what happens beyond that. Well, I'm not sure that question hasn't already been answered. Uh, you know, based on what I've seen at UNESCO, civil society is playing a role in helping set the agenda for what UNESCO might be pursuing in terms of its human rights. I think that there is a, a global civil society, the way I understand it, is that level of civil society not necessarily concerning itself with, or maybe they are concerning themselves with the national issues, but they also have as their agenda uh, a partnership arrangement with international organizations to such an extent that they uh, have a place at the table to set the agenda uh, of what human rights are pursued, uh, to uh, work with international organizations to bring pressure on their member states to conform to that agenda. And I think we're past the stage of questioning whether such a such a global civil society exists. You know, I've I've been seeing it work firsthand. Austin Ruse is in the room. He's seen it work firsthand for many years, more than me. So, uh, but I do understand the distinction John making. I think it's an important one. There's a lot of good civil society organizations doing work at the national level and at the international humanitarian relief uh, yeah. effort. But uh, I think we're seeing it much more aggressively in in terms of actual governance at the international organizational level. John, did you follow up? Yeah. Here's the mic, John. Uh, it's interesting, just to follow up on that. Yeah, of course, I, I agree with you that there is such a thing, but I see a danger here. Uh, and let's look at particularly the case that John mentioned, which is Amnesty International. Uh, they may be monitoring Burma, but I, I would guess they're mainly interested in monitoring the United States. Uh, so in, rather than being an international organization, I guess I would see them more as a transnational organization, which is attempting to use transnational institutions to influence a national democracy by the United States. These would be American lawyers, even in international, Amnesty International USA, not getting what they wanted for the U.S. Constitution, and then seeking not an international forum, but, it, but it's something transnational, not between, in other words, not among nations, but something that penetrates the nation state. I think you might agree with how I'm characterizing this. So that, that's the danger that I was thinking of here is... Um, where an organization is not really international but transnational and then seeks to uh, operate um, beyond the Constitution of the United States, even this would include, very much include American lawyers. Thanks, John. Ted, did you? Thanks, Ted Frank, AAI. Just a, a practical question. With respect to these human rights guidelines from Paul Hunt, Am I right that this is just a single reporter? And if so, what obligation does he have to respond to comments, to uh, address comments, to incorporate comments into what his final report? And if there is no such obligation, uh, where is the real firebreak in, in this process if, if we want these issues of free markets to be heard? Well, two, two comments in reaction to that. I mean, the, the – I mean, one of the one of the smartest things I did in law school was take a couple of courses on European law. Uh, so I'm, I mean, I, and it's from that that I first learned about the concept of the of the rapporteur. I mean, the European Parliament uses the rapporteurs. I mean, imagine a situation. Mean, let me analogize it to the U.S. Congress a little bit. Uh, the Democrats are in control of the House and the Senate. A bill passes a committee. The chair of that subcommittee or committee will ask one of the 
leader generally ask one of the leaders of the majority party to write a report on that bill before it goes for for floor consideration. A little different in Europe. I mean, in in the European Parliament, the rapporteur is, well, I believe this is still the case, expected to take the the views of all parties and all discussions into account in preparing the final report. People can disagree as to whether that's a more democratic or a less democratic system. Um, if the specific question you're asking is what obligations does a special rapporteur have to faithfully reflect comments, um, you know, I mean, strictly speaking, there is no international administrative law. It's, it's not the same as the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation having a duty, I mean, once it puts something in the Federal Register, to consider the comments it receives in response to that notice. Uh, the special rapporteur reports to the person, i.e. in the case of the Secretary General, or to the body that appointed him or her. So uh, there's no strictly no obligation. That having been said, you know, one hopes that, that comments will be will be considered and and I would just repeat what I said at the end of my own remarks that the way to ensure that comments get considered is for comments to be made. And the increasing number of comments that are made, uh, the increasing num likelihood that those comments need to be reflected uh, in a final report of any special rapporteur. I mean, the, the, the primary use of this function in the international system is really for countries, that there would be a special rapporteur on human rights in a particular area, Palestinian territories is an example, Burma is another, uh, where that person then goes and collects evidence and reports back. Um, but, 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 you know, as I say, there's, there's strictly no international administrative law uh, yet, and I guess I think that's a good thing. Thanks. Um, hi, Austin Roos from CFAM. We work on uh, social policy at the UN. Uh, one of the problems that we run into is the, monitor, the human rights monitoring committees that take documents that have been carefully negotiated by governments and sometimes reinterpret them completely the opposite way from which governments intended them. And then governments must appear before these committees, which are mostly NGOs, and then they get reports which are then used by national courts to force governments to change their laws. So my question is, I guess kind of a technical one. At what point may a government file a reservation? And let me ask you what I'm, what I'm thinking about. Um, the CEDAW committee, for instance, has interpreted, there's a general recommendation 24, which has reinterpreted the document to say that uh, the document which is silent on reproductive health includes reproductive health, and that reproductive health includes abortion, for instance. Now, this was not agreed to by governments, but by this monitoring committee, which is mostly NGOs. May a government at this point issue a reservation on that point and say we do not recognize this general recommendation? I'm going to defer to Jim on that question. I mean, I'm really here more to talk about the guidelines themselves. I'm, I have, have read the CEDAW Treaty in the past. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking about specifically about CEDAW. I'm just asking when may a government issue a reservation? Again I'm, defer, again, I'm going to defer to Jim on the, okay. on the substantive area. Is it, is it on the is on, oh, Terry, uh, I'll defer to Terry in a second, but is, are your, is your question specific to uh, intervening with respect to these draft guidelines or uh, with respect to a treaty itself? Okay. Terry. Terry Miller. Thank you. Well, I'm not an international lawyer, but um, I can certainly tell you, Austin, that in the case of CEDAW, the United States, at least, would not be in a position to file a, 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 any kind of document because the United States is not a party to CEDAW. 
Um, and indeed, the United States is not a party to many of these um, bodies that we're talking about. And, and one of the things that has puzzled me for a long time um, is the fact that the United States, through some sort of impulse, which I would have to describe as something like feel-good utopianism or something, um, nonetheless was in on the creation at the beginning of many of these declarations uh, the Declaration on Bioethics, for example, that we talked about, um, that Jim talked about, the U.S. acquiesced in that. Uh, the Covenant on International Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the U.S. acquiesced in that at the beginning. Uh, the U.S. acquiesced in CEDAW at the beginning, in the Kyoto Protocol, and on and on and on. And then the U.S. subsequently seems to want to try to draw a line and stop these at some later point in their development. So I guess my question would be to ask you gentlemen to comment on that. Um, and then my second point I'd like to make is that it, it seems to me that we also have to bear in mind very much the lack of democratic accountability in any of this as it moves forward. Um, in the United Nations as a whole, um, people often confuse one country, one vote with a democratic system. Well. It's, it's something, but it's not democracy because most of the member states of the UN or UNESCO are not themselves democratic. And, and so there's no carryover of democratic legitimacy into those decisions of those bodies. And then when you have non-governmental organizations, which represent some form of elite public opinion rather than democratically legitimate public opinion, um, again, you, use, you lose democratic legitimacy. So... Uh, that seems to me to be the most important missing element here. I, I'd just like to say, you know, Terry raises an important question, and that is we're now at the stage of, through these networks, this whole global governance agenda where the United States, uh, both private corporate citizens and the State Department, has to do a lot of soul searching about is this the way that things are going to be moving forward. Uh, you have a non-binding declaration on bioethics and human rights and UNESCO uh, adopts it, and, and now you basically have the UNESCO bureaucracy and NGOs deciding what it means to be a socially responsible company and, and what does it mean to share the benefits of scientific research and progress. Uh, and at what, you know, what happens to the member state at that stage? When, you know, can you throw up the yellow flag and call foul? Uh, you know, can you pitch a fuss? Can you write a letter? I, I just don't know that it's going to do any good. And so you, you, Terry raises the important question. Do we now uh, even, how do you stop the process of universal declaration of bioethics and human rights from even being adopted at UNESCO? You only have one vote. Uh, are you in or are you out? Are you complaining or are you not complaining? Uh, but we're at the stage now where this is real. These, these, these declarations, these treaties are now being uh, uh, implemented, uh, defined, enforced by civil society by uh, the global compact they're kind of complicit in it and and then uh, by the international organizations that are supposed to be representing the member states so I think we're sort of at a new tipping point in terms of international governance and and we've got to reassess what we can do to you know stop these things when they come along yeah let me just follow up on that and answer the another part of your question I mean at the risk of sounding like either uh, Hugo Grotius or Henry Cabot Lodge uh, we uh, never ratified the Versailles Treaty even though President Wilson signed it uh, I would certainly take the position uh, as an American uh, lawyer 
that uh, the signature on a treaty is not dispositive of the U- of U.S. ratification. And President Clinton chose to sign the Kyoto Protocol despite a, a, a an advisory adverse vote in the Senate, uh, and it was and it is not part of U.S. law because it was never ratified by the domestic process for ratification of a treaty, which is of course the the consent of the Senate, the uh, the, the advice and consent of the Senate. So. From one perspective, I, I mean, I don't know what led to the, what led to the, to the decisions to participate in some of these treaty negotiations. Maybe there was a, a view that something might be considered more acceptable that could be presented to the Senate or, or various administrations making decisions or things like that. But again, I mean, I would, speaking as I do from the perspective of the classic conception of international law, I would say that a country is not, in particular the United States, is not bound by these treaties until such time as the Senate has chosen to ratify them with or without various reservations. That having been said, you know, in for ascend and for euro, and uh, another, there's another doctrine of classic international law, which is that, which is that countries may de facto find themselves subject to treaties or other norms of international of customary international law in one of two ways. Either because something has simply become such a norm that it is considered customary international law or through state practice. Uh, some of you who follow arms control, for instance, will recall the debate in the 1980s about whether the U.S., even though it had never ratified the SALT II treaty with the Soviet Union, was nevertheless quasi-bound by it because it announced its adherence, it announced that it would not go beyond its principles. Well, that's an interesting question. And I think it is a question that people may legitimately ask within the framework of classic international law. Why this is relevant in this context is that there is a term in United Nations parlance, in international development parlance, known as international humanitarian law. That term incorporates a number of conventions, notably the CEDAW, which was discussed earlier, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which uh, the United States Senate has never ratified. Could one get into a situation where U.S. acceptance of international humanitarian law uh, means that we have de facto ratified these treaties? Again, I don't know. I don't think we're there yet. I hope we're not there yet. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting question. And then the next question would be, well, would a, would a court then find that as a principle of international law, we had in fact ratified these treaties, which seems to be to me a much harder question. Um, but again, just not that I want to advertise myself as Hugo Grotius, but I mean, at least from what I know of international law, public international law, that's how I would analyze the questions that you have, that you have posed. Hi, my name is Evelyn Boyd-Simmons, and I'm with Pfizer, and I'm really grateful for this session. It's very educational. One of the things I think I learned today was this uh, notion that UN and UNESCO are interested in moving from an intergovernmental uh, kind of a framework to a tripartite, I think you called it, which would include the private sector. And I'm just wondering, how have you seen this played out? Because we, as the private sector, and I think I speak for my friend from Merck and um, maybe others in the room that I don't recognize by face. We have not um, seen the benefits of, um, of the seat at the table that uh, the UN and UNESCO purport to award us. Um, on the other hand, we do seem to be a favorite subject, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, 
and set of entities to be acted upon and to be drawn in. Um, so I'd be very interested in that. And then the second thing I'm wondering is, you know, based on the discussion of the role of the state and the role of the United States in particular, what happened to multilateral diplomacy? I mean, the United States, I feel, has, has never been quite as good at it as the, as the Europeans. But it seems that today, more than ever, that's a need. Um, and maybe we're not in the best position at the moment to exercise leverage um, based on other things that are going on. But how do you see just shoe leather being applied to these kinds of issues? I mean, is there a um, sort of a consensus view about what should be done with respect to international organizations and the perception that they've step, overstepped their boundaries? I'll take the first part of who decides who will have a place at the table uh, from civil society as, as UNESCO and other UN agencies move forward with this tripartite arrangement that I referred to. Uh, quite frankly, I think it will be the same, that, uh, same process for recognizing what non-governmental organizations get accredited by these international organizations. And Austin's had you know, experience of this. I think any, anybody from a policy think tank uh, in D.C. who has aspired to be formally recognized at, at some level with an international organization understands that you go through a process of, of, of submitting an application and then your uh, application is reviewed by a committee of, of, of people who usually are all aligned with one uh, philosophical viewpoint about the you know the way the world operates, and uh, for some organizations they will always be on the outside looking in. And, and uh, uh, as far as civil society goes, I guess it's a, it's a question of uh, if you were discussing the right to water, uh, then you probably if it were a, 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 a you know a Evian, you probably wouldn't have a seat at the table. Uh, you know uh, uh, if if you were talking about the right to housing, uh, and you know you were the world's largest housing manufacturer, you might not have a place at the table. So I, I don't know whether they're just going to wind up with nobody left in civil society that they haven't been able to aggressively pursue as far as their human rights agenda. But for now, uh, I know, uh, and Alex can attest to this, at the civil society meeting in, in Paris uh, for the general conference, L'Oreal had a very large presence. You know, I, I don't see anything in the L'Oreal uh, portfolio. I don't know L'Oreal. I shouldn't speak out of school. But uh, I don't know what human right they could possibly be violating that they got uh, a place at the table other than their you know, large French company and, and perhaps know the you know, people in the bureaucracy there. So I, I don't think there's any science to that process as far as those, you know, I, I just think that, that, and I'm not, I don't understand this whole global, global compact thing right now in the sense that it seems like these transnational businesses that, that, that are members or aspire to be members of the global compact in some instances are, are signing, not, not a death warrant, but sort of just here come, you know, they're putting a the target on the back. Maybe they think they'll, they'll be able to co-opt the process. And if we're members of the global compact, you won't come after us. If we've agreed to your 10 principles, but at the end of the day, if, if you're in violation of Paul Hunt's guidelines, uh, whether you're a member of the Global Compact or not, I, I think the barrier to entry just becomes too great, and you either decide I'm not going to be a member or I'm just going to be a bad member. Uh, but I, they haven't come up with processes yet for who's going to uh, you know, be favored civil society organizations. As far as the leather and the you know, hitting the ground, and uh, if you want to tackle okay. that one. Well, let me just start. I mean, with respect to, to the Global Compact, I mean, despite the comment I made earlier about the uncertain definition of seven, I mean, let's remember, I mean, the Global Compact is a voluntary organization. I mean, I think it's great to have Western businesses, businesses in industrial Asia and India and South America and Africa and other countries, other regions, Russia, uh, signing up for something which says they're going to fight corruption. I think it's great. 
And frankly, I mean, I think the UN definition on corruption is a pretty good one. And I've repeated. And, and, and no, I know. And you know, what's the place of the private sector in in the process? Because I'm not really seeing. It. Right. Well, that's and that's the thing. I mean, in terms of the in terms of the, the UNESCO, I I mean, I think Jim did a pretty good job of, of of that. I mean, I can tell you about an organization that I've involved with, which is of course the Global Fund, where um, private sector had a board seat. One. I mean, the NGOs had four. Um, the it w- the country coordination mechanisms were explicitly designed to provide a place for the private sector in each of their in, in each of their um, countries uh, that was not universally adhered to. And in fact, one of the things the U.S. did was to was to force an audit of the country coordination mechanisms to find out are these things still government dominated or do, do they actually have patient groups? Do they actually have NGOs? Do they have the private sector? Do they have faith-based organizations? These types of, of things. I mean, if you ask my preference, I would prefer to say that civil society is a sort of Tocquevillian definition which includes the private sector as opposed to this, well, we're civil society and you're not because you're trying to make money, which, I mean, but that having been said, if Jim's somewhat sobering analysis is correct, then, you know, then maybe we do need to move in a direction more like what the Global Fund was trying to do, of saying there are these distinct issue, I- interests that should be represented somehow. Um, but that's again. That was a, that's another radical. It's, it's another. I don't want to say radical, but it was another very different departure in terms in terms of governance. To answer your question about the Europeans, I mean, I've had the privilege to attend a number of international uh, organization meetings, and it is not easy when you know they start with 31 votes and we start with one. Um, how do I get to 31? You have 27 members of the European Union, uh, Croatia, Bosnia. Serbia and uh, Macedonia uh, have all signed association agreements with the EU, so they are effectively bound by the common uh, security and foreign policy. Uh, if you go to the WHO meeting, they act when whoever is the representative of the presidency delivers the vote, as you know, blah, 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 and representing uh, the Republic of Turkey. Okay, okay, fine. I mean, so they do that. They do a. They do a better job of that internally, and they have their own internal discussions. Um, I suppose a country has the right to vote against the European consensus. I would, in, I've seen it happen a couple of times, uh, but it's unusual. Uh, one of the things that struck me at the WIPO meeting was the, the that I just attended was was the regionalization more generally, um, be it the European group, be it the Asian group, ASEAN in particular. And, you know, in ASEAN, it was the first time I'd ever seen in the international context, I'm sure it's happened before, first time I'd ever seen the presidency of ASEAN take a, a, a role the way the presidency of the European Union does. Somewhat ironically, I mean, I hope I'm not speaking too far out of school here, but this year the presidency was Singapore. Singapore is a wonderful free market, effectively first world industrial country. And the presidency, on behalf of the Southeast Asian region, made some some comments and some took some votes that were frankly surprising for those of us who have a high degree of regard for protection of intellectual property rights. And I can only explain that by saying that within the consensus of the ten member states of ASEAN, uh, that, that they lost. And that they felt an obligation to the regional group rather than simply to their own national interests. Uh, we will see more of that in the in the uh, in the future.
and I don't have an answer for that. I think you're right that we do need to have more shoe leather. We do need to have a lot more demarches going out a lot earlier from the State Department to embassies and various capitals uh, to influence not only the vote itself at the meeting, but really the process that leads up to these meetings because regionalization itself means that these that the effective decision is taken far before anyone ever sets foot in Geneva. So, hope that answers your question. Well, th thank you all again, uh, one and all, for being here. And uh, thank you, uh, John Gardner, and thank you, Jim Kelly, for your uh, very thoughtful comments. We look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Good job, Dan. Enjoyed it.